0: Welcome to EGIL the podcast. My name is Sarah and I'm an Editor-in-Chief of the European Journal of International Law. The second issue of this year's volume contains a debate on one of international law's most classic topics, jurisdiction. Whether one is an undergraduate, master student or law professor, a national legislator, judge or police officer, One cannot escape the domain of the international law that regulates which state is allowed to regulate, adjudicate and enforce and what they are allowed to regulate, adjudicate and enforce. But here I am already beginning to enter a dangerous zone because what the concept the international law of jurisdiction refers to may be one of the disagreements underlying this ideal debate. So let's turn to the two contenders of the debate in issue 33.2. Nico Kriesch, professor of international law at the Graduate Institute for International Law and Development Studies in Geneva and author of Jurisdiction Unbound, Extraterritorial Regulation as Global Governance. Welcome, Nico.
1: Hi, Sarah. Great to be here. Thanks for hosting us.
0: Wonderful to have you here, Nico. And let's turn to Roger Roger O'Keeffe, Professor of International Law at Bocconi University in Milan, author of Cooperative National Regulation to Secure Transnational Public Goods, a reply to Nico Krisch. Welcome, Roger. Hi,
2: Sarah. Thanks very much. The computer just dropped out for a minute there, and luckily I made it back in time. Lovely to be here.
0: Great to have you back. Nico, Roger, your debate allows us to think about the past, present, and future of the international law and jurisdiction. But first, we need to make sure we're talking about the same things. Nico's title refers to unbound jurisdiction, extraterritorial and territorial regulation, and global governance. Roger's title to cooperative national regulation and public goods. Are we speaking here about the same things in different words or are we actually speaking about different words so nico when you speak of jurisdiction what do you mean
1: yeah so jurisdiction of course can kind of many things to different people and in different contexts so if we speak about courts or officials or countries or something of the sort now all of this has to do with the power to speak or determine the law in a given domain right that's in a sense the basis in our context the international law context, but right? It mostly has to do with boundaries. Uh, and I recently watched, kind of, my son made me watch it. Red Notice. Some of you may have also kind of watched it. And there, kind of, the supposed FBI agent is told by the art thief, "Well, you don't actually have jurisdiction to uh, to arrest me here in Italy uh, because that's kind of beyond your jurisdiction." I, I quite like that. So jurisdiction in sort of popular movies, uh, but. We're not here talking about the jurisdiction to enforce, which this is about, to arrest, to seize property or the like. Instead, so in my article, I talk primarily about the jurisdiction, about prescriptive jurisdiction, as we call it, the legal power to prescribe rules for what actors in a given situation have to do or not to do. Um, that's normally unproblematic when it's about things happening within a state's territorial boundaries. It becomes more complicated when it has to do with situations that have a transboundary aspect or so, but that's something we're going to talk about, uh, I guess, uh, going forward.
0: Good. Roger, would you uh, give your view? Do you understand jurisdiction in the same way? Uh, Yes, I do. Um,
2: uh, It's in this context, the authority of a state under international law to regulate and to give effect to the regulation of persons and property. Um, Of course, classically, it's considered to have three different aspects. To prescribe, that is to assert the application of the law, more or less in the abstract. Um, To adjudicate, that is to entertain cases about a particular matter and to enforce, that is to use the uh, repressive powers of uh, the state through the police and indeed through the courts to um, give uh, sanction, as it were, to the law. But as Nico said, Primarily, we're dealing here with the authority of a state under international law to regulate certain matters. And the fundamental question ultimately is, in what circumstances may a state regulate matters which take place in the territory of another state? And what we're talking about here is what a state may do under customary international law, not what it must do, but under treaties you can provide for what it must do. And we're not saying that only that state may regulate. What we're saying is that state may regulate regardless of what other states may also be able to do. So we're talking about, under customary international law, concurrency of jurisdiction. In other words, what one state and perhaps other states at the same time may regulate.
0: Okay, so the first parameters have been set. We know what we talk about when we talk about jurisdiction today. Now, Nico, you used the term global governance and Roger puts global governance in scare quotes. Um, Nico, what does global governance mean for you?
1: Yeah, it sounds easy, but isn't so entirely easy. There's quite a debate about what global governance might mean. Uh, we don't need really need to enter into the details here. Now, what I do really is use global governance like the classical statement of it. You can say by James Rosen now already almost 30 years ago, Uh, He was one of the first to talk about governance at a global scale, about global governance. Um, Essentially, what he means is the systems of rural, purposive behavior, goal-oriented activities to achieve shared goals at a global scale. Um, Now, that's broader than government, and that's precisely the point, but it's not limited to formal powers, enforcement or the possibility of acting with binding force or through police or something of the sort. Um, instead, it is broader, it includes all kinds of things that are potentially informal, uh, conducive to action, trying to influence behavior. Now, what I use global governance here for is really to generate a distinction, not a distinction with government so far, government is a sort of part of governance more broadly, but a distinction between the coordination among equals and process of governance through which one actor or several actors seek to influence the behavior of others. So uh, the coordination among equals, equals is all horizontal, whereas governance in this understanding always has a certain, at least vertical component. Someone tries to order what others are doing. Um, and that's really kind of the, the major contrast. I think I try to work out in the law of jurisdiction.
0: Okay. And hierarchical elements in the word governance. Roger. You put governance in scare quotes. Why?
2: Um, well, I haven't heard the expression scare quotes. It wasn't intended to scare. Uh, it just meant global governance as meant by Nico. And I understood what Nico meant by global governance as pretty much what he just said.
0: Okay. So the second key topic or key term for this discussion has also been clarified. Now we can go into the meat of the discussion and for the vegetarians, the tofu of the discussions. As we said, the, the article is all about jurisdiction, how the past has been of jurisdiction has been understood, what jurisdiction, the law of jurisdiction, how we should understand it today and where we may take it in the future. So let's go about this argument about the past. Nico, your article begins with how the law of jurisdiction has been understood traditionally and then goes on to argue that that's not an accurate description of how states actually use their domestic law to regulate. So how has jurisdiction been traditionally understood?
1: Yes, I start from the way in which jurisdiction is, say, taught in law schools, the way in which it's presented in textbooks and the like, kind of a standard account, you can say, of jurisdiction. Now, there's obviously some variation across authors, across countries, across universities, uh, but there's a common thread. That's the image uh, of a horizontal order. Um, So, jurisdiction here is typically depicted as delineating the spheres of different states, right? So, different states are situated next to each other, and what jurisdiction does is draw a line between what one state may do and what another may do. Uh, Now, normally, this follows territorial lines. Each state does, and we've talked about this already a bit, each state can do what it wants to do in its own territory. They obviously overlap sometimes. A state may also regulate certain things that their own nationals do abroad, for example, and there are other grounds for doing this. But this is more the exception. The normal starting point uh, is, and so, for example, James Crawford, one of the most influential international lawyers of the last decades really said, um, kind of the presumption is that jurisdiction in all its forms is territorial and may not be exercised extraterritorially without some specific basis in international law. Um, so jurisdiction is here in principle about relatively separate spheres, and it is about relations of equality. Jurisdiction is typically seen, say, an expression of the principle of sovereign equality of states, which, kind of, for many still is kind of core underlying principle of the international order, jurisdiction is a core element of maintaining that image of equality of states.
0: What I really like about this part of your article is that it shows the importance of how we are taught something um, and, and the importance of textbooks the importance of our professors. So I was taught jurisdiction by a certain professor, Roger O'Keefe. And I remember his explanation of jurisdiction slightly differently. So Roger, what, what is your traditional understanding of jurisdiction?
2: Well, I mean, I think the, the, the starting point is uh, essentially the same. I mean, a lot of it depends on how far back in time we go. Um, We have to think, of course, about the Westphalian dispensation, which was that a state may regulate whatever takes place in its territory. And as a starting point, only it may regulate what takes place in its territory. These are expressions of its sovereignty. But as to the second bit, what we also know is that uh, limitations on sovereignty, freely agreed to, are themselves an expression of sovereignty. And so states realizing that they and other states have certain legitimate interests in regulating activities which take place in other territories have over the years, over the centuries, accepted, and these links have been formalized into the so-called heads of jurisdiction, that on certain specific grounds, states may regulate concurrently what takes place in the territory of another state so Nico mentioned nationality which in some accounts particularly republican accounts is just as important as territoriality but also of course the protective principle if something that foreigners do in a foreign state threatens some fundamental interest of the regulating state the regulating state may indeed regulate it But what's crucial here is that this is concurrent. It does not displace the authority of the territorial sovereign. What we're saying is, look, under the territorial sovereign's law, it's one thing, and under the regular extraterritorial regulating state's law, it's another. And in the end, it depends really where the matter is enforced. Uh, There is no hierarchy among them. Uh, It's not that the territorial state has first bite of the cherry, as it were. In a way, it's potluck who gets the hands on the company or whatever, but there's also other ways of regulating it at the end of enforcement. But there's no doubt about it that it was seen as originally as um, a doctrine of restriction, as it were, of delimiting spheres, but at the same time, one that was always subject to the permission implicit in customary international law and explicit in treaties, that there were grounds on which you could regulate abroad. And my argument is that long ago um, it, it, it was accepted that, in fact, there are many grounds on which states can regulate what takes place abroad. My main beef, I guess, is that I've never thought of it as lines drawn on a map. I've always thought of it as overlapping spheres, overlapping virtual spaces, as it were, of authority. And so this um, uh, cartographical image, as it were, that uh, Nico has, I I, I find a little overdrawn. I've always conceived of it as um, overlapping uh, force fields, as it were, of authority.
0: Well, that brings us actually To how um, the image that Nico does come up with for how we should understand the law of jurisdiction, at least the law of jurisdiction as it is today. And that's one of the most um, innovative aspects of the, the article. Nico, can you explain how should we understand the law of jurisdiction today?
1: Yeah, so in many ways, kind of what I argue is really kind of that we have to get to an understanding of overlapping force fields in a sense, as, as Roger just kind of outlined, uh, right? So what I do in the article is I focus on economic, on business regulation. So I'm interested in how the so jurisdiction starting from this national territorial frame goes together with global markets, markets which are kind of in many ways a-territorial, globalized, with transactions crossing borders all the time. So that's quite in contrast with that kind of territorial frame. And it's difficult in this frame to, for countries to regulate effectively such global markets. So how I trace how actors and states use jurisdiction in practice in such contexts. And if kind of I look for examples in financial markets, and corruption data regulation, shipping, global value chains, um, and there would be other examples too to look at this. So what I find in all this is that territoriality a territorial principle plays a very limited role in fact but a pretty strong role in rhetoric right in most contexts um, the territorial frame is the one that governs but very limited connections are actually enough for a state to regulate a certain issue globally right so the US is regulating um, all kinds of crimes actually criminalizing action uh, very easily, if only there is a slight connection with using the dollar or crossing through U.S. territory at some point during the commission of the crime, which in a sense kind of allows them really kind of to target financial crime almost almost everywhere very easily. Um, and it's not only the U.S. The EU is doing much the same thing in many contexts, trying to use very thin territorial connections to regulate uh, issues of an environmental nature internet regulation and, uh, and the like so i argue that jurisdiction has really come unbound in this territoriality is no longer a limiting principle but instead merely kind of a rhetorical frame in which states can largely do what they want when it is about actors on global markets now that's not necessarily a bad thing or one doesn't have to necessarily think it's a bad thing often it actually provides a service to everybody, to other countries too, uh, can provide what people call global public goods. I um, think of financial markets. I mentioned it. You know, it's important that someone regulates them. Um, for global market, it makes little sense that each country tries on its own. This will be just too fragmented and wouldn't, in a sense, be able to catch up with the scope of market actors. Um, but what this unbound jurisdiction I trace leads to is a particular way of providing such goods, right? Namely one in which just a few powerful countries can typically decide what goods to provide, uh, when and how they ought to be provided. Um, And that comes with a serious problem really for the sovereign equality frame I've mentioned. So jurisdiction continues to be portrayed as linked to territoriality and to sovereign equality, but in fact, it has come to be about much the opposite. It allows for the establishment of factual hierarchies in which some countries govern uh, and others are subject to that governance. Uh, And that's really kind of what I want to point to with tracing this unbound jurisdiction and its consequences uh, is that this hierarchy governance aspect has taken pride of place over the territorial quality-oriented frame and that it is important that in our broader conceptualization we take account of that um, and do not kind of continue to portray the extraterritorial element really as an exception to a rule where the rule really doesn't exist as much and it is the extraterritoriality, the
2: global, the unbound element um, that dominates.
0: Roger, is your reading of the current situation the same?
2: Well, certain aspects of it are definitely the same. And in fact, this is my, in a way, my first critique of what, uh, Nico says, is that everything he says more or less tends to disprove his first point, um, which is that territoriality is a is a, is a restriction. Um, manifestly, it's not, because although, of course, it's the starting point, states long ago realized that there's many, many extraterritorial bases of jurisdiction, in fact, so with no connection to territory. And they also realize that territoriality itself is flexible not only objective and subjective territoriality the classic where it ends and where it begins um but also certain things um like effectively setting conditions on entry into territory by by things like you may not uh fly your plane in our territory um without uh you know emission um control now that's a territorial form of jurisdiction. Uh, But of course, the technical reality of the situation is you can only fly the same plane from A to B, and it may be that economies of scale mean that you have to change your whole fleet. But what that state is doing simply is saying, in our territory, you may not uh, do this. And my essential question to Nico is that, how is this a structure and how is this a hierarchy? Let me, um, uh, let me just give a very brief example. If I have a house, okay, and I'm taking in people to live with me, okay, and I say, you may not smoke in my house. And I'm not saying to other, uh, other people, you have to enforce the same rule in your house. I'm not saying to your neighbor, you have to have a smoking ban in your house. And I'm certainly not saying to the person who lives in my house, In the other house, you may not smoke. So I don't see how my ban on smoking is impinging on the sovereignty of my neighbour to do, to say what he or she wants in her house, or indeed is unfair on my tenant. Now, the reality of the situation may be that that person is addicted to smoking and either they always smoke or they never smoke. So in saying, if you live with me, you can't smoke, the practical reality is that person has to give up smoking if they want to live in me with me or they don't live with me okay and they may want to live with me if my house is super 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 lovely and the other house is crap but as far as i'm concerned whether that person is addicted to smoking and whether my house is super lovely and the other is rubbish are contingent realities rather than in any way structured into the law of jurisdiction and I don't see how I'm imposing a hierarchy on anyone through a contingent reality.
0: Nico, you've been posed an essential question. Where's the structure in the law of jurisdiction?
1: Yeah, I think and it really gets to the to the core point and the core difference again, that Roger and I have on, on the issue. Uh, and that has to do really with the social context in which the rules that we're talking about operate right um, now in a sense you talk about one context you know, so if you have a house somebody else has a house and then people can choose to live in one place or another it uh, would be very different um, if your house where you enact rules is one that people kind of almost naturally have to go to to go about their daily business right so there's a certain element of dependency and secondly if you said well look, you come here, but you can only come here if you haven't smoked before in the last few hours, say. Um, So that means that everybody who wants to or needs to come to your house, say you operate a market or something, right, um, kind of has to stop smoking well before, and in whatever other houses they go to, and even in their own house, kind of they've they've got to stop smoking. Um, So you first kind of impose a rule that effectively operates territorially, And because people depend on your house, they're really forced to comply with that, even if they're not in your house, but kind of everywhere else. Now that's essentially kind of what you do when you say, well, for you to operate on my market, you have to follow my rules. Um, If you want to have access to the European and the American market, you have to follow our rules on emission standards, chemicals regulation, uh financial crime what have you right uh, because in a sense most economic actors except for some cannot really afford to not operate on european and u.s markets um, so we say well okay you stay outside it's, it's in a sense your choice but as a matter of social fact it's not really a choice it, ex- it exploits kind of that form of regulation exploits differences in power That are uh, that actors simply have to cope with, and actors are embedded in. And what my argument is, we cannot leave aside kind of those relations of power when we look at the effects and consequences of particular rules. Now, it would be really easy if we said, well, okay, sort of, we have rules about, say, the use of force, right, and intervention, and we say, kind of, as a new rule, everybody can use force for the for bettering humanity. Right? Say, Well, that's all equal. Everybody can equally use force for bettering humanity. So that doesn't impose any kind of hierarchy, clearly. But as a matter of fact, as a consequence, an open permissive rule like that would very easily not only lead to a free for all, but much more lead to the possibility of the militarily powerful to intervene whenever they want and whenever they think it's for the uh, bettering of humanity. um, Whereas the others have to suffer what they do. So what I really urge with that structure is to, uh, is to take account of the,
2: of the factual context in which those rules operate. Well, I get back to the question is, how is this hierarchical? Let's take emissions. Um, and let's say you have another state where if you want to use its airports and fly into its airspace, you don't have, need to have emissions control. How is the fact that Europe imposes emissions control forcing on that other state a sovereign choice, because in fact, you can, you can comply with both laws at the same time. The fact that I fly an emissions efficient plane into the other state does not in any way infringe that other state's law. Uh-huh. That state has not been displaced as a sovereign in any way. Um, and in terms of fairness, to the individuals concerned, I still come back to the point that no matter the attractiveness of my house, it still remains their choice to go into that market. And in fact, this sort of thing may indeed create market incentives to stay out of that market. So it may be that in fact, some airlines say it's not worth our while to fly into Europe. We'd rather make our money in China or somewhere else. Uh, And so in a way, in that way, China's sovereign choice not to have sovereign emissions may work to its advantage so um, I'm still struggling with the idea that this is somehow imposing on those other states choices okay that they wouldn't make if that other state's choice is to have lower emission standards in no way are you violating that state's law through imposing higher ones even on the even if it has the effect that you fly a a more efficient plane into, in, into the other state. Um, and, uh, and in terms of fairness to the company, I mean, uh, uh, in, in the end, uh, I don't have a right to live in someone else's lovely house. Okay, it's as simple as that. I uh, uh, and and it may well be that, you know, some states uh, offer more attractive benefits um, than others. But as, as far as I'm concerned, that is a contingent reality. And the and Unless every time one state becomes more powerful than another richer than another, etc, we have to restructure the rules of jurisdiction, uh, I find it difficult to conceive of a system um, which can be sensitive to those needs. It seems to me that what uh, uh, n- what Nico is doing is placing the burden on the rules of jurisdiction um, to uh, level as it were um, economic uh, influence throughout the world and 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 i guess my question is whether that's uh really uh the gist of the law of jurisdiction
1: so just maybe one point, one uh, one point more to come come back on this because i kind of it's really really interesting not it's true of course there's all contingent reality but nevertheless it's reality around us. Um, And any reality is contingent. Maybe in a different world, obviously, a world of relatively equal states that have little to do with one another, the rules of jurisdiction would work very differently. Now, in our world, they work, I think, very much like the way I describe, um, and they offer opportunities of influence and the exercise of power to some rather than others. Uh, And that is very much distributed along lines of wealth and economic power really uh, on most of those markets um now what do we take from there right i mean i think in the first place kind of it helps us to assess whether those rules are really the right rules, because under some even admittedly contingent circumstances you just need different rules right clearly if you have a 17th century economy kind we might not need to care so much about the environment because people didn't pollute so much in the 20th 21st century you need strict environmental rules because people have built factories contingently admittedly that pollute enormously so we need to come up with rules for this it's clear kind of law is always about responses to a social reality in which it sits and we cannot assess it outside of that frame so What I urge is to say, well, okay, sort of, if the rules of jurisdiction today have that kind of consequence and function, um, what should we make of that, right? And I say, well, we should understand them as a form of allowing for global governance by some over others. And if that is the case, then we have to think about kind of how to deal with the consequences of that, kind of what mechanisms do we have to possibly think about, Would we have to change the law of jurisdiction to make it more restrictive? Would we have to come up with stronger accountability frames? Something of the sort. But I think we cannot escape that. We cannot simply say, okay, in the 18th century it worked fine, so today
2: it should also work fine. So uh, I I guess my ultimate question is, um, I still struggle to see how this is structured in, in, in because ultimately the law of jurisdiction allows change through the usual processes through the development of new customary rules through state practice and opinio juris and through treaties. And the whole point of my article is those tools are already there in the law of jurisdiction and they are indeed being used um, so that we have many, many treaties which provide um, for mandatory bases of jurisdiction in relation to the regulation, uh, extraterritorial forms of jurisdiction Uh, In relation to the regulation of what you might call um, global public goods or transnational public goods. So, my uh, argument is ultimately that uh, there's no real built-in structure. It's just the usual way of international law. If you don't like something, states can change it through the usual customary processes. And they've given rise in that way to a range of extraterritorial bases of jurisdiction or if they don't want to do it through customary international law they can do it through treaties my argument is those tools are there those tools are already being used and i don't see what hierarchy has to do with it and indeed what's absolutely fascinating about these treaties and about the developments of customary international law is that although states have the chance to establish hierarchies in the vast majority of these treaties, there is a provision which says when it comes to enforcement, states have to discuss it. And this is precisely what they do. And I guess my final point is this that Nico's focusing on um, uh, prescription, but indeed, the way in practice states sort these things out is at the point of enforcement. So there's a range of bilateral and multilateral treaties to do with cooperation between. Um, competition authorities, there's of course extradition treaties, mutual legal assistance treaties, and so on. And it's through that that states choose to create at least a practical hierarchy, or they indeed choose not to cooperate, or they choose not to cooperate. And my point is those tools are available. That's part and parcel of the law of jurisdiction. And indeed, tomorrow, they could say territory's got nothing to do with it. Um, I, and in a system like that, I can't see how hierarchy is actually structured into it.
0: So, Nico, Roger has said that he's made his final point. My final point is, so the final question is for you. What's wrong with the existing tools of the law of jurisdiction, especially the existing tools also to change the law of jurisdiction?
1: Yeah, but let me take up that point of change. It's really important, right? It's, of course, true that as a matter of, kind of formal law, states are completely free to change the law of jurisdiction. Now, the current rules, though, as all rules, always operate as default rules. So you will only get change if all states, all states concerned, actually see an advantage in changing them. Now, the thing is that the current rules setting up the hierarchy that they do, advantage some states and disadvantage others. So you're not gonna get that agreement. Take competition regulation, for example, that's kind of the standard original case for extraterritorial regulation, right? And there we see kind of that other countries have said for quite some time, well, let's do a multilateral treaty or some multilateral regulation about competition regulation. And they've tried, for example, to do this in the WTO context and kind of in other contexts as well. Now, what has happened is, that especially the US has said, well, no, thank you. We're perfectly fine with using our extraterritorial tools to regulate global markets, competitional competition global markets. We can act against cartels if they form elsewhere. We can act against anti-competitive behavior. We don't need to engage in a multilateral process that requires all kinds of compromises and causes us all kinds of trouble if we can also do it unilaterally. So in fact, kind of the very fact that we have these possibilities under jurisdictional rules today means we get less cooperation and coordination by states because some states don't need it, right? They have the unilateral tools. Now, that doesn't mean that we should all kind of, kind of go back to some territorial frame of the 17th century or something, right, so that, that's not necessarily the conclusion. How should we maybe change the rules uh, in a sense, as long as we need some form of unilateral action on global markets to provide the public goods I talked about before, right which obviously is also an important consideration, at least we have to think about sort of what would it mean to have a fair regulation of public goods in this decentralized frame And one thing I argue for in the article is to say, well we really have to think about public accountability in a serious way here, kind of finding ways of including those actors governments and publics uh, into the decision-making processes on what rules to enforce and how they ought to be enforced uh, that are affected by those rules um, so if you make a uh, regulation of global value chains that involves regulation of labor rules in bangladesh right you need to involve the bangladeshi government and the people of bangladesh in some way in this process in an effective way in this process not just listening to them, but also really find a way of taking this seriously. Um, Now, that's of course, in a sense, transitory. Ideally, we would get to a system in which we really have properly cooperative, co-decision making on the rules and the ways they are enforced. The current fragmented, fractured international society doesn't make that overly easy. Um, But as I said, kind of simply leaving the rules as they are currently in place actually makes it too easy for many actors to just stay away and say well okay we don't need to get into joint action and regulation we can just do it on our own um, and that's i think a real problem and that's where in a sense the hierarchies that i talked about are perpetuated
0: nico roger thank you very much for a very rich debate on one of the foundational topics of international law one saying what's wrong with the international law of jurisdiction and the other responding what's wrong with the international law of jurisdiction? So um, we, but nobody has to make up their minds, uh, Where or, or everybody's free to make up their own minds as to where they stand in this debate. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. For other episodes of the podcast and much more international law, visit egiltalk.org and egil.org.